Thank you for allowing our family to be a part down there this week, and they know that you sacrificed by sending us there, and, um, and so I'm very thankful for that. They're very thankful for that, and they're also just thankful for you in general. Um, you're, uh, you're well known to the trainees. They um, listen to services here. They listen to sermons here. Um, they, um, <clears throat> they're very uh, plugged into the church here, even from that kind of distance. I do have to say, it's quite an adjustment coming back. There's two things already I miss, and I hope one's going to get here really quick. One is warm weather. Um, I told somebody, it was a little overcast for them, a little cold for them. Cold for them is 70 degrees, and, um, you know, we were, three, we were about 10 miles outside of Brownsville, right along the border, uh, if you look at a map, and so... Uh, it was very warm. On Friday morning, I woke up, went to prayer time at 5. At 5 o'clock, it was, uh, I think, 80. It was right, at, right, right around 80, high 70s. By the time we got our prayer and breakfast, it was already up in the 80s. And by the middle of the day, it was 95. And the sun was shining. The birds are singing. The flowers are blooming. The smells are filling the air. And uh, I can't wait for that to get to us. I got off the plane in Atlanta, and I was like, my goodness, it's cold. You know, the other thing I'm not so sure we can fix unless we are blessed of the Lord to have some of uh, the cooks from down there, um, authentic um, Hispanic food. Um, so I got to eat good. Um, and it was a great week. Um, it was great in the sense, too, that, you know, I was telling somebody, you are an eager audience, and you are grasping truths, and you are applying them in your everyday life. But I have to admit, there's something just in, that enthuses the soul to teach in front of people that are looking you in the eye, and they don't flinch at the thought. They have signed a death and burial agreement. They don't flinch at the thought that they will die. Their children will die. Their wives will die. And they're soaking up truth in systematic theology and biblical theology to immediately apply in their context. And they're asking these kinds of questions about um, things. And so it's nothing, it's <clears throat> really the first time for me to experience something like that. It's very good. But while I was there, I got a taste of what it's like to not be here. And I had to say, you know, one of the things I don't think we grasp, I don't grasp enough. I thought about this in one of my, my times with the Lord this week. This is meant by God to be a taste, a foretaste of heaven. The reason, and we'll get to it in Hebrews. I'm studying Hebrews 10 right now in preparation for the sermon series in Hebrews. Hebrews 10 encourages us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. The reason is, is that when believers gather to worship the risen Christ, it's a taste of heaven. Eternity is breaking back into our time. And it should enthuse and energize us, which is why if we're not doing it, we're weakening ourselves. And we're straying from Christ. It's just, it's just implied there. It's so strong there in Hebrews. And I, not being with you, being at a distance from you, and I know your, the pastors here did a great job, and you guys didn't even know I was gone, and I'm back, and you're like, well, we didn't even realize it. But I realized it because I wasn't with you, my family. This is where God's placed us, and, and I missed every one of you and uh, longed to be back here because there's a sense in which I hope I get in the Grace Fellowship section of heaven 
where we're all still mixed with brothers from all over the world, but we're still close enough that I can see you and you can see me. I mean, I just feel a real connection in Christ um, to you as, as uh, brothers and sisters. And, so, and finally, before I get to the sermon, I want to uh, uh, just thank Dave. Um, I listened to the sermon. Um, man, you taught me a lot, and I really appreciate it. You labored hard. And uh, I know everybody here was strengthened and encouraged and grew from it. And so, and I know it was a sacrifice. And thank Lisa for us too, because I know she had to share you a lot, share you a lot of hours with concerts and recs and, <laughs> and getting the sermon ready and everything. Um, you worked real hard and it, it paid. It paid. If, for nobody else, for me, it paid. Thank you. All right, let's go to uh, Wisdom from Proverbs on Marriage. This is the sermon for today. How is it that we are to live in community as married people? And uh, yesterday I was reading the Wall Street Journal, and in uh, the section on entertainment, for some reason, they had a whole centerpiece article on marriage. I don't know all of that. I don't know about the editors of the Wall Street Journal, why they put marriage in the entertainment section but anyway it was a it was a top five list of things you need to succeed in marriage Um, number one was shocking from the sense that the wall street journal would say this was get married earlier and uh, they they talked about this trend of getting married in the mid 30s and the late 30s that's going on especially highly educated people and and people are establishing their whole lives and then they're merging but they're not really marrying marrying they're they're two independent people um, so it was encouraging get married earlier um, and um, not as crazy as Amy and I marrying at 20 they didn't say that early they're talking about late 20s which to me that was old but uh, but that but down the list came number four, which was religion. And the author of this article admitted that in his early life, he rejected his parents' religion. He walked his own way. But as he gets older, he realizes that the fabric of life, really, there is built and intertwined into the fabric of life uh, the desire to be religious. And if your religion doesn't match the religion of the person you marry, you're headed for a train wreck. And, um, and he, he uh, talked about that quite at length. And I have to admit that, that, you know, the thought of marriage, really, if you just stop and think about it, it goes into the context for me of the disciples saying, how can these things be? If it's this way, it would be better not to marry. That's their response to God's vision for marriage. God has joined two people together, and what God has joined together, let no man separate. And their immediate response is not, all right, let's all find wives and get married. Their response, those married, those still unmarried, is maybe we shouldn't get married. And Jesus doesn't tell them that's foolish. He says, but everybody can't live that way. Everybody can't be a eunuch. Everybody's not made for singleness. And so he upholds singleness as a, as a beautiful picture in itself of godliness, and he upholds marriage as a beautiful institution to display God and his re- relationship with his people. Jesus does the both. He holds them up. And I think our churches, um, this one included sometimes, can fall in the, in the habit of discounting singleness, acting as if that's like a subcategory of the Christian life. If you're forced to live single, bless your heart. 
Um, as uh, one, of the, one of the missionary trainees from Puerto Rico, she said she's learned what we were asking, you know, what she's learned about people and we we're talking about parenting and all this. And she said, and Amy, I think, or I said, bless your heart, you know, and she said she just died laughing. She was so full of life. Uh, Eric and Alicia stayed with her. And she just said, that means that's a negative thing. Like, I know that from the South. Like, when people say, bless your heart, they really mean, like, you're, you know, you're, something's wrong with you or something's wrong. You know, so, um, you know, we treat them like that. It's like, oh, bless her heart. She's 25 and not married. Oh, bless his heart. He's in his 30s and not married. You know, it's like they're, they're negative. It's bad to be single. The Bible upholds singleness as a good thing for some. And we should champion that and welcome that and embrace that and revel in that and help the singles in our lives go to the maximum for God's glory because it, it, it's a good thing. And Jesus also upholds marriage as a godly institution which he designed for our good and for his glory. So he does both. So although I'm talking about marriage this morning, if you're here and you're single, either not married or not planning to get married, there's still things here that you need to know um, that I hope will speak to your heart. We, we, we see in the Proverbs this outworking you know, out, uh, of the theology of marriage, and it's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit you know, intertwined in some other ideas. So we'll have to pull out a lot of text here. For the ladies in the room, <clears throat> usually women think the proverb writer only writes to wives about what they should be, Where's the passage on husbands, right? Because Proverbs 31, the last half of the chapter is all about wives. And I've had that question asked, like, did Solomon not want to tell men how to be good husbands? As I studied for this sermon, it dawned on me, really, the whole book of Proverbs was written to his sons, the men of, of Israel. And so if you think of it in that context, there's 30 and a half chapters for men, and there's a half a chapter for women. I, not, not to go too far with it, but it made me think when it dawned on me like, boy, we're thick-headed. It takes 30 and a half chapters to get men to think to be good men and good strong leaders and husbands. And then he, as an addendum, says, okay, now women, here's some things for you. It's like, you know, we're the ones that need to get it right. And there's a sense in which I think that is true and then a sense that we all got to work to get it right. The importance of this subject, it goes without, almost without any defense. Happiness in life depends, as a married person, on the relationship you have with your spouse. And, and we make jokes about it. You know, if mom ain't happy, nobody's happy, and all these jokes. But there's a truth that if in your marriage there's this, this unhappiness, this you know, battling conflict... Nothing else is at peace. When Amy and I are at odds with one another over anything, I can't get work done very productively. I can't get other relationships done very productively. My whole life starts to kind of like unravel before my eyes until that's restored and repented and made right. And there's a sense in which without a good marriage relationship, your life unravels. The Bible um, shows us this in 1 Peter 3 when it says that that men are to dwell with their wives in patience and understanding, recognizing them as the weaker vessel, not the, un, the unskilled vessel, but the one who needs, uh, has needs also. Not to be self-centered. Peter says, 
says, if you don't do that, men, in verse 7, then your prayers are hindered. So your life, really, and your happiness is wrapped up in this relationship of marriage in, in so many ways. If even our usefulness to the Lord is affected by the relationship we have with our wife or our husband, if that relationship isn't right, things aren't right. So let's look at the text, the Proverbs, and see some principles of marriage. First of all, we want to look at the wife's role in the marriage. What is the wife's role? What, what is the ideal picture of a wife in marriage? It's found in Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31, verse 10, to the end of the chapter, <clears throat> verse 31, is the picture of Solomon of the ideal wife. The, the woman's role is put forth here in its clearest form. Maybe in all of the Bible, it's the most detailed of what it looks like. First of all, the woman, a godly woman in marriage is to be trustworthy. Trustworthy. Verse 11. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. Here the picture in the Hebrew is that her heart, the heart of the husband, finds refuge in the security of the trustworthiness of his wife. She's like a haven to him from the storm of life. He knows if everything else breaks down in my life, my wife is dependable. My wife is trustworthy. I don't have to worry about home. There's nothing more distracting, again, to work than to know that your wife is, is um, struggling to manage the affairs of the home and you're, you're off outside the home worried about what's going on at home. That, women, is, uh, is torture for a man. And the husband struggles and doesn't find safety in that. She also here is implicit and, 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 uh, and explicit is the idea in the second part that he will lack no, there will be no lack of gain. So here is the idea of home management, as Paul brings out in Titus. The idea that a woman can be trusted with the, with, the, with the finances of the home. And the man can almost, you know, just, he can turn that over to her. He knows that when she goes out on the town, he's not going to lose a month's worth of salary because she's going to be frivolous with the spending of the, of the money. He can trust her to make decisions in his stead without his input even. Now, I want <clears throat> to just talk to the women, and then I just want to talk to the men. Ladies, if you're developing a pattern in your life that makes your husband question whether you can do this successfully, you really need to work at being trustworthy. You might not be an accountant, keep every receipt and all that. That may not be your personality. But you need to, you need to be engaged so much in the fabric of your home that you know we have X dollars and it can only be spent in X numbers of ways and I'm going to respect the fact that that's the truth. I'm not going to go out and be frivolous. I'm not just going to go out and do whatever I want to do because when you do that and you do it consistently, your husband loses trust and it can wreck a marriage. I've seen women... And men do this to their marriage. But I'm speaking directly to women. Women, I also want to encourage you to engage in finances in your home. We'll get to the man. But some of you men rule your wives rather than love them. And so you hide finances from them. And you treat them like 
kindergartners and you give them their milk money and they don't have a clue how finances work in your home. Some of you are that way. And so, you know, they become embittered. They become, they, they, they rub raw under that kind of leadership and they really struggle to submit to you in the area of finances. You need to have a both approach to finances. Your wife, you wives need to engage your husbands on finance. You need to ask good questions. You need to understand what's going on. And then you will be able to be trustworthy with the money. You'll know the long-term objectives. I mean, I've talked to guys that are frustrated out of their minds because they're trying to pay off their home and their wife keeps going and spending money on vacations and, and new clothes and all these things. And they're just bitter. And they come to me and they've got their gritted teeth. And that woman, God, I mean, she's out of line. And I don't understand what God's doing. And I'm like, well, have you ever told her you're trying to pay the house off? Well, no, she just ought to know. That's common sense. I'm like, no, it's not. There's no unity over the long-term financial goal of your home, so your wife can't be trusted because she doesn't know. So, in this area of um, trustworthiness is the idea implicitly that if our house will gain in, in, in uh, what God's providing, if we will build on what God has given us and it will multiply, we have to be together. And then we have to respect one another in this. There needs to be trustworthiness. Secondly, we need to be this wife is filled with enduring love. If you look at verse 12, she does him good and not harm all the day of her life. There's this enduring, this devoted love that she has for her husband. She's doing the husband good every day and every night. She's kept her vow. She had made a vow at the wedding ceremony and she's staying in that covenant, true to that covenant in all of the ways that it works itself out in everyday life. She is enduring in love. In other words, I don't take this woman in Proverbs, the ideal woman, to be out about the town tearing down her husband. I take her to be one that's building her husband up. Um, the, the, uh, the, the real life picture of this in my life early on came from a, a coach that I had. And, and when we had um, practice, he was constant. Now I had bad coaches and I had a good coach. And he was constantly finding things to compliment about his players. He was con I mean, we weren't all that great at basketball, okay? We were, we were pretty bad. But Coach Griffin was notorious for us being down 10 to 2 at the timeout and him coming in and saying, I'm telling you guys, we are playing our tails off out there. I am so proud of you guys. Now, what we're going to do is make a little adjustment here. We're going to keep moving. It's going to get better. I mean, there was this, he was always looking for the, the compliment. You know, you would, it, was, it was junior high basketball, so I know he wanted to, you know, just run his head through a wall with us, right? And you'd pull up, and I never will forget, I played at Parkway Christian in a, in a Christmas tournament in seventh grade. He put me in the game and near the end. And I, and I get fouled. I go to the line. It's my moment. And I shoot this. I was, I'm left-handed. And I shot, I shot this beautiful elbows in, tight. I shot it. And it landed halfway down the lane. It like went up. It was the most beautiful shot you've ever seen. It just landed halfway to the goal. And the place just went quiet. Like Nobody wanted to set the other teams like looking like. He really just shot that. Anyway, so I'm going down and like tears are filling my eyes. I'm embarrassed, you know. 
And, and um, he call, he's hollering my name. And I'm thinking, oh, he's, I don't want to look over there because he's going to be red-faced. And man, I look over there, he's got the biggest smile. And he says, I want to tell you, you followed through perfect on that shot. <laughs> now, I tell you that not to, talk, to build Coach Griffin up, but some of you ladies, and we're getting to the men, but some of you ladies spend a lot of time focusing on what your husband doesn't do well when what you could do is spend a lot of time focusing on what he does do well. And to your friends, building him up. Not lying and being dishonest. It was a beautiful follow-through, okay? <laughs> he wasn't lying about it. It was just I wasn't strong enough and I wasn't athletic enough at the time to get it there. But he b tried to build into me this idea. And so I'm just saying to you that this enduring love finds what it can to latch on and build this man up and, to, and, and instill in him a real confidence in his leadership ability. Some of you want him to lead you at home in Bible study and lead your children in Bible study, but all you're doing is... Is, is yakking at him about what he's not doing. Encourage his heart to do it. Support him when he does. Stop everything when he picks the Bible up and just sit down with your children. Instead of cleaning up and doing a whole bunch of other stuff and being distracted, just sit with him and sit at his feet and, in, and encourage the children to do the same. This enduring love. Third, she has practical skills. Now this gets intimidating. I just say that up front. This Proverbs woman was like she woman, uh, according to this passage. Verse 13, she seeks wool and facts, so she's a businesswoman. She works willingly with her hands. She's like ships of the merchant. She brings food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maids. Verse 21 and 22, she's not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household is clothed in scarlet, in fine clothing. She makes bed coverings for herself, and her clothing is fine linen and purple. What a, what a, what a picture of an industrious woman. She's sewing, she's cooking, she's meeting the needs of her family. Wherever you are, ladies, in life, and whatever you're doing, provide for the needs of your family. If you're working in the home, outside the home, work hard. Uh, and, and if you're working outside the home, that's fine. But the home is the center. We know that. And so don't neglect it in doing other things. Don't get distracted in it. The, the ideal woman is she's trustworthy, she's enduring in love, and she's industrious. She's using whatever skills God has given her to maximize her uh, home and her husband. Four, she's industrious. Verse 16 points this out, that she's not waiting um, to, to uh, let, the, let the season kind of take hold of her. She's taking hold of the season. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. So again, um, she's making investments. She's buying land. She's planting vineyards. She's providing income. She's making clothing and selling it to the merchants. We see that in verse 24. She makes linen and garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. So she's an industrious woman. She's using and maximizing whatever it is she has a skill to do for the good of her home. She's compassionate. Fifth, fifth characteristic of this wife is she's compassionate. Verse 20. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hand to the needy. 
She's always seeing the needs of others and she's reaching out to meet those needs with whatever she has. She has strong character, verse 25. Strength and dignity are her clothing and she laughs at the times to come. In other words, her character matters. Her yes is yes. Her no is no. Her character matters. When she says she will do it, she will do it. This is, this is an important characteristic for ladies in the home is that they can be depended on. How are they dependent on? Because they have strong character. She just developed a strong character by putting it to the test. 1 Peter 3, 3-4 tell us that she's quiet and she's submissive, fulfilling the role of a husband, uh, even able to win a husband without a word by her quietness and her gentleness. This character is, is wrapping the home up in the love of Christ. Her children and her husband are like riding the wake of godliness that she's putting forth. That's the Proverbs uh, picture also that it agrees there. So, seventh, she speaks words of wisdom and kindness. Verse 26, she opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She's concerned about the, the, what comes out of her mouth. I'm um, Ephesians 4.29, Paul says to not let any corrupting talk come out of our mouths. And this woman is possessing that. Whatever she says is, is fit for the moment. She times her, her advice and her wisdom wisely so that her husband will hear it. She's not backbiting and gossiping and lying and tearing the other people down in, in, around them. She's simply speaking wise words of counsel as Dave talked about. Um, she's an example of the wise in Proverbs. She's diligent to seek her family's needs in verse 27. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat. She, she, uh, and does not eat the bread of idleness. So she's not ever at rest fully without having met the needs that she has or that her home has. She makes whatever preparation is necessary so that her family won't go without in lean times. She's the opposite of a sluggard from an earlier message. She's learned the lesson of the ant well. Ninth, she fears the Lord. The ninth characteristic of this woman is she fears the Lord. Verse 29 through 30. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. So we have this idea that the woman, at the very foundation of who she is, fears the Lord. She is the application of Proverbs 1-7, where it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of righteousness. She's applied that well, and that's really what everything's built on top of. So we did it, we did it in a sense in reverse order. I believe number nine, at the end, is the foundation that all these other things come out of. It's not a list for Solomon what he's not giving you, ladies, is a list to go home and try to accomplish. What he's saying is, this comes out of a woman who fears the Lord. The godly desires are a desire to be trustworthy, to be an upbuilder, not a person that tears down, to be a one who's committed to the covenant lovingly in relationship, to be the one who's going about finding the needs of the family and meeting them and diligent to work hard and reach out to the poor even and give to them what they don't have. That all flows out of this foundation of the fear of the Lord. 
It's the, it's the fruit, in a sense, of a godly woman. Second thing I, I want to say is what wives are not. What wives are not. If we, what wives, uh, say we see what the wise wife is or what the good wife is, what, what should a wife not be? Proverbs 21. Proverbs 21 verse 9 says, It's better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. So they're not quarrelsome. What does that mean? They're not contentious. They're not loaded for war. They're not trying to find something to be angry about. They're not nitpicking over every little thing. They don't think it's their job to keep the house stirred up. They're not contentious and they're not hateful. Proverbs 30, verse 21 and through uh, 30, verse 21 through 33. Under three, un, under three things the earth trembles, under four it cannot bear up. A slave when he becomes king, and a fool when he is filled with food. An unloved woman when she gets a husband, and a maid servant when she displaces her mistress. Four things on earth are small, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are a people not strong, yet they provide their food in the summer. The rock badgers are a people not mighty, yet they make their homes in the cliffs. The locusts have no king, yet all of them march in rank. The lizard you can take in your hands, yet it is, it, it is in king, a king's palace. Three things are stately in their, in their tread. Four are stately in their stride. The lion, which is mightiest among beasts and does not turn back before any. The strutting rooster, the he-goat, and a king whose army is with him. So we see... Through that passage in Proverbs 30, verse 21 at the beginning through 23, we see this, this, the proverb writer saying, the earth trembles under these things. And what is it? One is a woman that's hateful, unloved woman, and a maidservant when she displaces her mistress. Both of these make her husband's life miserable when you're contentious and when you're hateful. So we have the character of a godly woman and we have what a godly woman in a marriage is not. Let's look at the husbands quickly. Where are the passages describing this virtuous man, this ideal husband? Well, first of all, he values his wife highly. Proverbs 18, verse 22. Now, ladies, you can breathe a sigh of relief. We're on to your man. Proverbs 18, verse 22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Men, when you think of your wives, do you think of the grace of God? Do you see your wife as a gift entrusted to you? Or do you rather see her as a utensil to be used for your selfish purposes? God has given us men, and men of this church, maybe more so, godly women to share life with. They are a good gift. Proverbs 19, 14. House and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Your daddy can make you rich, but God makes you richer. Not with material things, but with a good, godly woman. 
first of all, men, we need to step back and say, am I valuing my wife? By the way I talk about her in company of other people, by the way I look at her when she comes into a room, by the way I speak to her out of words of my own mouth, by the disgust that builds under the surface and the slightness that I give towards her in my time, am I valuing my wife or am I not? Is life about me and what I'm pursuing and then my wife's the tag alone or do I see my wife as a gift that I should cherish and honor and love? Virtuous husbands, ideal husbands, esteem their wife, especially, especially when they're godly wives. All wives should be cherished. But guys in here, I just got to tell you, some, the women in this church are gifts. <laughs> I mean, I've been around a lot of women in the world, okay? And I've been a lot of, around a lot of church women. And I'm not trying to be braggadocious. I can't take credit for any of it. But these women are precious. And so even more so, we should cherish them. I think in, in terms of um, some of the lessons I've learned even in this church, as I've watched the older men, some of these older men cherish their brides. I think about um, J.C. Robinson in this regard. When you would get around him, and, and Helen was there, Barry knows what I'm talking about, you could say a lot of things, but you best not get on his bride. Right? That was unacceptable. He loved her. He upheld her. He championed her. He was on her side. And she knew it. And he served her quietly without making a big brass and gong and sound about it. He just did it every day of their lives. I think about Danny Robertson. <laughs> he knew. He, he was scared it was coming. <laughs> He knew I might do it. I mean, guys, I just challenge you. Invite yourself into Danny's world, young guys, and then watch him and Ann interact. After all these, how long have you been married, Danny? 41 years. He still calls her his bride. I don't ever see Danny disrespecting. Now, Danny can get agitated. You know, he's, he's passionate. And then Ann can just simply give him a look. And he, he knows I'm going too far. And, it, and he respects that. He honors her in that way. I've never heard Danny make fun of Ann about anything. Never. We have good examples. There are more. I just mentioned two for time's sake. But there are young men in this church. Look to these older men and learn from them how to cherish the gift that God has given you. We have good gifts. Secondly, give the, the godly wife, a husband gives the wife her due. Proverbs 31, 31 says just this very thing, what I've just been describing. Proverbs 31, 31 says that the fruit of her, he give, give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. How are her works praising her in the gates? Because earlier in the text, the husband was in the gates. The reason her works are praising her in the gates, the reason the people of the town know she's a godly woman is because her husband is telling people she's a godly woman. As he goes about his everyday life, 
He's letting her reap the benefit of for the labor that she sows into. He doesn't treat her as an appendage of himself. He treats her as a gift. He treats her as something that's valuable. Third, he praises his wife profusely. Verses 28 and 29. Her, in Proverbs 31. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also and he praises her. Nowhere in the scripture do we find that he bashes, cuts, ridicules, makes fun of. Ever in the scripture. But here we have a clear command that he praises her with his lips. He honors her with his speech. Sometimes, guys, I'm afraid that we're worried we're going to build our wives' egos up so high so we cut them down a lot. And we speak very little of the good they do and a lot about the things they don't do. The Bible never gives us warrant for that. Ever. It always is talking in these terms of praising and lifting up the, the wife of our youth. 29 says, many women have, this is his praise. Many women have done excellently, but you surpassed them all. I want to tell you something. If that was on my lips more, Amy's submission towards me would be very easy. Sometimes I make it almost impossible for her. And I think some of us also, all do this. So he gives her praise. He praises her profusely. Fourth, he trusts his wife. He trusts his wife implicitly. Verse eleven says the husband trusts her with his heart. That means he trusts her with what's most valuable to him. It means he opens his life up and demonstrates to her a willingness to trust her. He doesn't make her earn it. He just gives it to her. In, such, in, in this way, it, it, he treats her as if she's intelligent, as if she's faithful, and as she has abilities and capabilities and skills. When you open your life up to your wife, men, what you're doing is telling them, I trust you, I love you. When you hide things and then they find out about it, what they, what they fear or what they know comes out of that is, he doesn't love me, he doesn't trust me. That's what I was talking about the finances a while ago. Women, you need to be involved in finances. And men, you need to have an open book policy. You, you need to, they need to know the finances of your household. Because when you do that, when you lay the books bare, and you do it regularly, and you say, here's where we are, and here's the money we have, and here's how it's being spent, and this is what we're giving, and these are the long-range plan, long plans, what you're doing is you're trusting her. She knows you don't talk this way with other people. When you open up about the hurts of your life to your wife rather than to your friends, she knows he trusts me. When you tell her how you feel that you've been abused out in the world all day and you come home and you open that up to her, it builds in her the trust factor. When you live roommate-style lives and you just talk on the surface of everything, what she understands, whether she knows it or not, is... He doesn't really love me that much. He doesn't really trust me very well. And so he trusts implicitly. He gives her who he is. He's not jealous or suspicious of her. Let me just say this. It's a problem whether it's man or woman. If your husband or wife, I mean, it, there, there are some untrustworthy things that have happened, okay? But I'm just talking in general. In general, if your wife goes to the grocery store and then you give her 19 questions when she gets home about who she saw and who she talked to and where all she went and all that, 
Whoa. If you start the timer when she leaves home to go to the mall and you stop it when she gets home and then say that took way too long, there's a problem. And this is going on. This kind of thing is going on. If she has to write down her daily report about what she's doing, there's a problem. It goes both ways, but I just want to encourage the men that in this passage is this implicit trust and that doesn't bring out jealousy. It honors intelligence and skill and faithfulness. Fifth, he's content with his wife's love. Proverbs 5. Proverbs 5. Verse 15 through 21. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated, drunk. Always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. What he's saying here is that we shouldn't be looking around to satisfy our desires in anything other than our wife when it comes to the sexual pleasures. When it comes to fulfillment and satisfaction, we should be only for our wives, and our wives should be only for us. This will save us and our families from harm. Some of us are, um, Amy and I had to rent movies every night this week because they didn't have any, you know, that for the kids, and there was no TV, no internet, any of that kind of stuff. And so we would let them watch a movie during the night. Amy and I typically got one. There was a movie we rented unknowns to us we didn't know we rented it and it went about five minutes and we just had to cut it off it's just it just was trash and the reason is is because I can't sit there and in in view this stuff and see this stuff and hint at hint at this stuff of sexual immorality because it, it dishonors my wife because she's to satisfy me only. My eyes are to be locked on her only. My pursuit of her should never end. So finally, guys, in this point, don't quit pursuing your wife. Rave about her beauty. Find, find ways to build her up and build confidence in her when it comes to the way she looks, the way she cares herself, the words she says, find things to say that build her up. The example of a good man in the Proverbs is a man that is content with his wife, trusts his wife implicitly, praises his wife profusely, gives his wife her due, and gives her the fill of her hand, lets her be industrious, and gives her the fruit of her labor. So how do we conclude? Ecclesiastes 9.9 says, Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life, which he has given you under the sun, all your days of vanity, for that is your portion in life and in the labor, labor which you perform under the sun. The reality is that the marriage is temporary. The marriage is for this life. So why does it matter so much? 
Because in Ephesians 5, Jesus, speaking through Paul, says, I love my church, and my church loves me. This is what it looks like. My church submits to me in all ways and follows my leadership, and I lay down my life for the church. And I wash my church in the word. And I, and I serve my life, give my life to serve that body, the church, which is my bride. I uphold her as a beautiful thing to my father and say, she, here she is, bejeweled in all the grace and glory which you've instilled in her through me. God, she is yours. That's in 1 Corinthians 15. He presents her then back to God. When he chooses to talk about that, he knows that it's impossible for people to really conceptualize that. So what does he do other than to go to the marriage of a man to a woman? Your marriage is a parable of the gospel. Christ and the church are not the parable. They're the reality. Paul says it's a mystery what I'm telling you about because I'm speaking of Christ and the church. He talks the whole passage about women loving their husbands and husbands, I mean, respecting their husbands and husbands loving their wives and all this interchange that goes on between them and submission and leadership and all this stuff. And then at the very end, he says, now this is a mystery. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about Christ and the church. What he's doing is building the parable. So your marriage, in parable form, pictures the gospel to the world and to your children. So what was a high standard in Proverbs? And you, when I got done, you thought, I'm not a virtuous wife. Every man in here, I guarantee you, if he's honest, said, I'm not a virtuous husband. Now it's been heightened even more. I'm, you women have to be saying, I'm not a good picture of the church. And you men, please tell me, if not, let's go to lunch and talk, that you realize I'm not a good picture of Jesus. This is impossible, which is why the disciples said, if it is this way, it would be better not to marry. They understood how hard marriage is, how beautiful a picture can be messed up with my ugliness. So what's the last, what, what do we do? What's our hope? Our hope is in the one who has done it perfectly. Our hope in the day of failure is that He has not failed. Because though the parable breaks down at times, the reality never fails. You have no need to be married in heaven, Jesus says, because you're married to Him. You have no need because you're satisfied in Him, in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth. So what he does in his resurrection is he brings that back into our lives. He brings back through regeneration the fact that you can be satisfied in him. So women, don't go home and try to clean your life up and be a really good outward wife. Spend your time knowing the one who makes you a good wife. Because he makes you whole through his own self. Men, don't go home and make a list of to-dos and sound like a robot complimenting your wife tomorrow you won't survive that way run to the one who is satisfying and because you're satisfied in him you will be sanctified and be a husband a virtuous husband an ideal husband never perfect in this life but always being sanctified always becoming more and more like him
Christ is at the bottom of the marriage. If He's not, it is doomed to failure. So my Wall Street Journal list was incomplete. It was good, but it wasn't enough because what the writer should have started with is without Christ, your marriage is impossible. He's, the number one on his list thing that you need in your marriage is not to find your soulmate, is not to get your life established together, it's not, it's not your religion. The number one thing in your marriage is you need Jesus. I need Jesus. We all need Him.